The Holy Gospel for this third Sunday in Lent comes from Luke chapter 13. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In this Lenten season, as you may know, we've been listening to and learning from our neighbors of other faith traditions, especially our Muslim and Jewish neighbors. And along the way, many folks are reading this book by Barbara Brown Taylor called Holy Envy. In it, she talks about her experience of teaching a world religions class in a small liberal arts college in Georgia. She talks about the experiences of her students, what it's, what it's like for them, most of whom grew up in the Christian tradition and many of whom have never met someone of another faith. But she also talks about her own journey, her own Episcopal tradition, the place she calls home, the part of Christianity in which she served for many years as a pastor, and how learning about other faith traditions both challenged and enriched her own commitment to Christianity. Early in the book, she writes about her hopes for the class that she's about to teach. And I want to just quote a brief piece of that. She says, I want the young people in my classes to know that religion is more than a source of conflict or a calculated way to stay out of hell. Religions are treasure chests of stories and songs, rituals and ways of life that have been handed down for millennia, not covered in dust, but evolving all the way, so that each generation has somewhere to go when it's time to ask the big questions of life. Like, where do we come from? Why do bad things happen to good people? Who is my neighbor? Where do we go from here? No one should have to start from scratch with questions like those, she says. And overhearing the answers of the world's great religions can help anyone improve his or her own answers. When I read that paragraph about a week ago, there was a sentence in it that really jumped out at me. That is, no one should have to start from scratch with questions like those. There's something profoundly meaningful and hopeful about knowing that you are not the only person wondering something big, something hard, something you want to think about but are not even sure has an answer, let alone an answer you can find. 
For those of us in the Christian tradition, the Bible is our companion in those big questions. Now, we should be clear, it's not a book of answers, which sometimes leaves people frustrated when they come looking for that and don't find it. Instead, it's a book of stories. Generations of the people of God struggling with all of those big questions and many more, wondering, where do we come from? Who is my neighbor? Where do we go from here? Who are we supposed to be? And the question that we overhear today in the story from Jesus, why do bad things happen to good people? It's my best guess that every time we sit together in this room and worship, that question is in the front and center of somebody's mind. Sometimes it's in the front and center of everybody's mind when a tragedy or an act of violence or a sudden illness or death or natural disaster ripples through entire communities and cities and nations and even the globe. But even on the weeks when maybe the news hasn't been so bad, some of us sitting here cannot stop asking that question in our own minds. Maybe someone we know has been diagnosed with a disease that they never saw coming. Or maybe a relationship we thought was on solid ground turned out to be splintering to pieces. Maybe someone we thought was doing okay got caught in the grip of mental illness, and we are terrified to say the wrong thing in case we make it worse. Or perhaps we are just being eaten from the inside by a gnawing sense of anxiety that we cannot calm or control. It's fundamentally human to ask why when faced by a terrible, awful thing. And it's also fundamentally human to try to answer that question, even when sometimes our answers might make things worse. We hear today in the gospel that Jesus' own community of people were asking that same question, and they were apparently creating some answers that Jesus found problematic shall we say. So as we heard in Luke's gospel a few minutes ago, people in Jerusalem have been struggling to understand several big tragedies in their community. Along the way, some of them have developed answers that still exist today when we ask questions about why. Namely, answers that try to pin the fault for the tragedy on the people who experienced it. If you think that this is an ancient biblical problem, and thank goodness we have outgrown that, try turning on the news next time there is a hurricane or an earthquake or a mass shooting. Or read about the history of the AIDS epidemic or mental illness or our current problems with homelessness. And you will hear someone somewhere give the same answer that Jesus' community had heard. They must have done something to deserve it. In another piece of her writing in a separate place, Barbara Brown Taylor says this, you know, even those of us who claim to know better react the same way. Calamity strikes and we wonder what we did wrong. We scrutinize our behavior, our relationships, our diets, our beliefs. 
We hunt for some cause to explain the effect in hopes that we can stop causing it. But what that tells us is that what we crave above all is answers, control over the chaos of our lives. I think this might be one reason why loose gospel preserves this whole conversation between Jesus and his community. People who have been wondering why something bad happened. So you and I don't have to start from scratch when we inevitably ask the same thing. So what does Jesus say? Well, on the one hand, he quickly disabuses his listeners of any like sloppy application of the laws of physics. This is not a case of every action having an equal and opposite reaction. The people who died in these tragedies, Jesus' names, did not deserve what they got. They were not the cause of the problem. There's no correlation between the suffering and some kind of sin. And anytime we or anyone we know tries to write that equation, we should remember Jesus' very strong reaction against it. But before we get too comfortable and start to walk away, Jesus does say something else. No, he says, these people were not sinners. They didn't get what they deserved. Oh, good. But, oh no. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. What does that mean? It's important that Jesus, in this story, stops the worst ways in which we try to eat ourselves and other people alive when bad things do happen. So he puts down all the pointing fingers and all the attempts at blame. That's not a game we get to play, he says. No. On the other hand, he is quick to remind us that the things we do in this world do have impact. They do matter. They might cause suffering, and they can stop it. Now, before we get too far down this road, let me point out something really important. And that is the bad things Jesus is talking about in this passage are not about individual illness or suffering or a natural disaster. So when we are struggling to understand why those things happen to us individually, why someone we know gets cancer, why someone we know can't find their way through mental illness and we don't know how to help them do that, when we are struggling with those individual experiences of pain, this story is not the place to go. Because here Jesus is talking about two very specific community experiences. First, an intentional act of violence by a cruel tyrant, Herod. And second, a terrible accident in the city of Siloam. Jesus tells people they need to repent, which we often hear as a word that says, feel bad about what you did. But in the original Greek, 
Repent means quite literally turn yourself and go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And in the tragedies Jesus is talking about, repentance, that is going a different direction, could have changed everything. So what would have happened if Pilate had repented of his ways of cruelty and violence? Maybe those folks worshiping in the temple would have been able to worship in safety and peace. What if that tower of Siloam was built by a shoddy contractor who used cheap methods and supplies and cut corners? If that person had repented of that, turned around and gone in a different direction, that could have saved lives. Along those lines, I think Jesus asks us some similar questions. What would happen if we, as a church or a city or a nation or a world, what would happen if we repented of white supremacy and the racism that goes with it? How many awful deaths and how much suffering would we stop? Or what would happen if we, as a church or a city or a nation or a world, repented of the consumerism that leaves mountains of plastic in the ocean and pollution in the air? How much suffering would we bring an end to? How many lives, human and otherwise, would we save? What would happen if we as a church or a city or a nation or a world repented of the greed that keeps so much of the world's resources in the hands of very few people and prevents millions of others from knowing where their next meal is coming from? How many new futures could we create? There's both comfort and challenge in this story today. I would like to stick with the comfort. That's my favorite part. And for that, we hear a clear word from Jesus. We cannot ever say that someone's suffering is punishment for their sin. No. That is not how this works. But the challenge is there too. We can say that what we do with our lives as individuals and communities, it does change things, both for better and for worse. And Lent is a good time to sit with that and let it make us uncomfortable, which is, I think, exactly what Jesus was trying to do. We all learn by heart in this life that we cannot stop all suffering. As much as we might want to, we learn this. And when our hearts break as a result, Jesus is there to comfort us and strengthen us, to give us to each other, and to lead us down the path one step at a time. And we can stop some suffering. We can turn and point ourselves in a different direction. We can water the fig trees that seem to have stopped producing, because you never know. Maybe this is the year. We can say no to stop inf- we can say no to inflicting pain on each other and on this beautiful world. It's not too late to turn and do the right thing. It never is. 
But Jesus asks us today, why wait? Amen.